Open your Bibles with me to Romans, the 11th chapter, where the Apostle Paul gave us a short clause that we shall use to entitle this single message. Romans 11:13, Paul wrote, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the Apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. The Apostle Paul magnified his office as the Apostle of the Gentiles. I am the Apostle of the Gentiles. He didn't say, I am a Apostle of the Gentiles, but the Apostle. He opened up the Gospel to the Gentiles, and he is the one that defended them against the Jewish legalists. And he had an understanding about the middle wall of partition being broken down between Jews and Gentiles more than any other man. And God chose him for that special office. I want to magnify the office of bishop in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look with me at Psalm 68, and we're going to go rather quickly, this is going to be one sermon on this subject. I have exalted the other four spheres of authority to you many times. The last time I preached on the ministry was the middle of 1986, For those of you that want to do some quick math, that's 25 and a half years ago. I defend fathers. I defend them with PowerPoint presentations that have pictures of skeletons with a raven picking the last bit of flesh off them to show you what Proverbs chapter 30 really means. I defend husbands and do much of your dirty work from the pulpit. I defend masters and teach what the Bible teaches, that in God's scheme employment rules, when he ran HR, a master could beat a servant to death. And I defend kings and all that are in authority, even our present president. And I teach without apology, and I teach without varnishing it, that we do not curse the king or the president No, not even in our thoughts or in our bedchamber. I have faithfully defended those other four, and I do not spend much time on the fifth, but I shall right now. When children leave a church for doctrinal differences after 15 minutes of Bible reading on a weekend, or they sing jingles about a bald head and considered a Bible argument, I must and will defend God's office for His glory and your edification so that you can despise them as much as God despises them. Amen. In Psalm 68 and verse 18, first let's get 11. I don't want to pass over it. Verse 11, the Lord gave the word. God gave His inspired scriptures. God gave His visions to prophets. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Whether Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets, whether the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ or evangelists that came from them or the bishops of churches that they ordained, great was the company of those that published it worldwide. It turned the world upside down according to the testimony of our own enemies in the book of Acts. Verse 18, The Lord Jesus Christ ascended on high. Thou hast ascended on high. We know this is about the Lord Jesus Christ because Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4. Thou hast led captivity captive. Death used to be our captor, but Jesus Christ took our captor into captivity. Thou hast received gifts for men. This 
passage tells us that God gave Jesus Christ gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also. Some of them, many of them, would not want the gift, nor want to do what Jesus Christ wanted them to do, that the Lord God might dwell among them. God dwells among His people in one respect by His ministry, and God dwells with His ministers in a way that that differs from the way He dwells with His people. That the Lord God might dwell among them. That would be a blessing of these gifts that God would give Jesus Christ, and that He in turn would give the church. If you'll come over with me to Ephesians chapter 4, we will see the Apostle Paul take this passage from Psalm 68 and verse 18 and show its fulfillment and then expand upon it a little. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, begins the quotation, Wherefore he saith, that is, God saith, in Psalm 68, 18, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now Psalm 68 said, He received gifts for men. That's because God gave them to Jesus Christ, and Paul, on this side of Pentecost and the cross, saw that Jesus Christ would in turn give them to men. We can avoid what's in parentheses because it's a different point. We can jump to verse 11. And he gave some apostles. Some men got the gift of apostleship and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, pastors and teachers being one office, not two. There's not pastors, and then another gift called teachers, because it says, and some pastors and teachers. That gift is a combined gift. There's two words being used. Pastor means shepherd, one who finds pasture and feed and nourishes a flock, and teacher, you should understand. They publicly preach God's word and reveal God's will to his people. It's one office. There are four offices combined in total in the 11th verse. Then the 12th verse, Paul tells us what the gifts were given for, for the perfecting of the saints. Saints don't get perfected by reading the Bible and praying. Saints get perfected by God ordaining men to teach them the word of God at a level they cannot acquire themselves by Bible reading and prayer. More to be said on that. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is built up by the work of ministers who are oxen equipped by God and the gifts of the Lord Jesus Christ to build up the edifice of the local church that till we all come in the unity of the faith. It's a minister's job to get us all in the unity of the faith. The more that individual church members read and study the Bible, the more probability there is that they're all going to find some little bumblebee that attracts their attention and wander away from the flock and herd with which they're supposed to be traveling, and the wolves and the lions prey on such. You want to get in the middle of the pack and stay right there and keep yourself safe. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what I want to teach you. Unto a perfect man, I want you all to be perfect. But notice who is working at this stage of this passage. It's the ministry working. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, because that's what you are by nature and calling. You spend your lives in carnal pursuits, and so by nature you're children. You only see a little bit. You don't see the future very well. And the Lord wants you protected, that church members be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, because there's lots of those snakes, wolves, and lions out there to take the weak and the straying 
down and to eat them, to devour them, to prey on them, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. They're in the tall grass. And so the herd of antelope, my wife, was very wise and prudent this week in describing the characters of the of some that have departed from us in describing a herd of antelope or deer in the plains of Africa covering some ground together. You know, the lions and the wolves and the hyenas do not go to the front of that pack and face the leaders head on. They don't do that. They lurk and crawl and hide in the long grass around the sides. And some little immature, naive one spots a bumblebee going from flower to flower and it distracts his attention. He wanders over to check out the bumblebee while the herd moves on just a little ways. Just a little ways. And with blinding speed at 60 miles an hour, a leopard comes out of the tall grass and takes him down and quickly clamps his powerful jaws on the throat and asphyxiates that animal. And devours it. Because they got enamored by some little bumblebee. Or there's someone stronger than that that wouldn't be moved by a bumblebee. But he thinks he's so strong, he can wander over to the edge and dare the lions to come and get him. He's got a top speed of 40 miles an hour, and the leopard's got one of 60, and he dares it. Come on. You can't catch me. It won't get me. It won't pull me down. Whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That's ministerial duty all the way down through 15. Verse 16 is what we all do together. What you do to build this church. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. When we all work together, there's a gift from heaven and an office from heaven that helps build up the church in the ways described from verses 12 down through 15 and then the church works together to finish it out with verse 16 and a church can be very prosperous in the sight of God that doesn't mean numbers like Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas it means as measured by God can be very prosperous and we can have Psalm 144 verses 12 through 15 fulfilled in our midst by practicing it this way it starts out with the office of a pastor and teacher The other name for that office is bishop. I never wanted this office. Let me get something clear in case you might have forgotten it. I never wanted this office. I never sought it. I never lobbied for it. I have had other careers better and easier than this one. Moses didn't want his. Do you know how angry it made God when Moses kept bringing up excuses? I don't want to go. Send somebody else. I can't talk. I've got a hair lip. I've got a twisted tongue. He was making up all kinds of excuses, though he was a ranking politician and successful military man in word and deed. In what? In word and deed in Egypt before he left at the age of 40. Yet he said, I cannot talk. How much did he want the ministry? Was he wise for not wanting it? Do you know what the next 40 years of his life were like? Jeremiah didn't want it. Oh, Lord, I am but a child. I know, and who do you think I am? I get, I've put some words in your mouth, and you're going to go preach them, even though nobody's going to believe you. How's that for an ordination service? Nobody's going to believe you, but I expect you to preach, and if you ever compromise the message because of the looks on the faces of those that are sitting in your audience, I'll confound you in front of them. 
Did Jonah want his office? Thank you. You should know that one. You say, I don't even know how that book got in the Bible. Either do I, except by the providence of God. Paul didn't want his. Paul said, if I did this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation, the gospel's been given to me, part of the proof that God has dealt with me and given me something worth hearing is because I never wanted this job, is what Paul said. I just want to make that clear. My anger and sarcasm will not match the Bible's. I haven't worked up to that level yet. Or to God's or to Moses. But I'm not too far behind them these days. Paul had to do the same thing, defend his office and ministry, especially to the Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I was going to give you an assignment. I shouldn't tell you the reward that I was going to attach the first family that could respond by telling me how many of the 12 chapters or the, the 13 chapters in 2 Corinthians, how many of those chapters had a reference to Paul defending his office and ministry and person against the Corinthians? You just need to take a little cruise through 2 Corinthians and realize that is unbelievable. Here's a man that could raise the dead, speak in any language, perform any miracle, was under divine inspiration, never preached a lie, was inspired by God, worked day and night, to support himself so that no church could ever say that he was doing it for the money. And they wanted to call him in question because they thought they had some teachers that were his match because those teachers told them they were his match. And so he defended himself vigorously. I'll give you one verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 11. 2 Corinthians 12, 11, I am become a fool in glorying. I'm looking like a fool the way I'm talking about myself, Paul said. Ye have compelled me. You forced me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles. And here's his real testimony, though I be nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. You saw me raise the dead, and yet you're forcing me to glory in myself, and you have forced me to boast about myself because of some little panty-waisted preachers that had come out of Jerusalem that were trying to steal the church of Corinth away from the gospel. You feel sorry for them? You should. Do you feel angry for them? Better. Amen. Amen. We're soldiers, not Girl Scouts. We have a war to fight. Authority is today mocked, rejected, and presumed on by brute beasts who don't know anything about ruling. In all spheres of authority, it's happening in our nation. It's happening across the world. Those rebels should be taken out and destroyed, just like God said in 2 Peter 2 and Jude chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. When I preached who was on the Lord's side just 10 days ago, do you all understand and realize I didn't have a clue what was coming four days later? I don't need to. The Lord does. Why was I convinced that that's what needed to... I had something entirely different. Did I, didn't I tell you on Wednesday night? I was not able to do something by which I was going to bring a PowerPoint presentation to you. I bless the God of heaven. He's my captain. One of the fears I had before I was ordained is how will I know what to preach? 
Now it's when will I have the time to preach it? <laughs> totally different. The office of a bishop. It's a pastor and a teacher. Pastor means shepherd. Bishop means overseer. The Episcopus in Latin. So the Episcopalians run off with that. The Presbyterians find the Presbytery in the New Testament, so they run off with that. We're Baptists, and we run off with that. Because John and Jesus were Baptists, and they baptized by immersion. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I only have a few minutes. I told you it's going to be one. So we just need to keep covering ground. This isn't exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. I... The series I did in 1986 is far more exhaustive than this. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 4 speaks of the Old Testament priesthood. And it said, No man taketh this honor unto himself. It was an honor to be a priest. A priest had to come through Aaron, the son of Levi. Not through any other son of Levi. Had to come through Aaron, not Kohath. If you came through Kohath and you didn't come from Aaron, you couldn't be a priest, you had to be a Levite. That means you chopped wood and carried water. That means you cut animals up on the altar, but you couldn't minister before the Lord. You could just minister before the congregation. It was a distinction, a division in job duties. But anyway, this is the priesthood here. No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron." 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. In spite of anything that I have said, this is true, and I believe it. It is a good work. Though it's a work that has its negative parts that would scare a wise man away from it, like Moses, Jeremiah, Jonah, and Paul. But it's a good work, because it's a true saying of the Word of God that it is. And if a man has a desire for it, that's a good thing. The Bible says to earnestly covet the best gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 28-31. However, desire doesn't mean a thing, because you can't take the honor to yourself. It has to be given only to those that are called of God. So it says, if a man does, if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work, a bishop then... See, he needs to be qualified. His desire doesn't get him qualified. It's not looking through a college handbook at some school and deciding that I'm going to major in religion and join the nonprofit profession and be a reverend for the rest of my life. And then, and who's it written to? It's written to Timothy. It's not written to a church. It's written to the man of God to find other men of God that meet these qualifications and to commit to them the gospel that had been committed to him and to put them into the work of the ministry. Let's turn to Mark 13 and find out that the authority of the minister comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 13. A man doesn't take the office to himself. He's called of God. He's put into it by Almighty God. It is a God-sent man that is among churches when they have a bishop that's called of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Corinth had the Apostle Paul, one of God's greatest ever, if not the greatest ever. Sent by God. What a, what a call he had to the ministry on the road to Damascus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Yes, I have a few things for you to do. 
And they include a whole lot of suffering for my sake because of what you've done to my church. But I'm going to give you the key to the Gentiles. You're going to turn them from Satan to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful ministry the apostle had. He said that the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. Paul would say about his call to the ministry. He would say, I was separated from my mother's womb. When he was in his mother's womb. Of course, you know that means it was before the world began. God had already purposed that Saul of Tarsus would be his servant. His servant to the Gentiles. Mark 13, verse 34. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey. You won't get this in a preterist list of timing texts. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house, his kingdom, his reign, his rule, his people, his vineyard, and gave authority to his servants, his apostles, his prophets, his evangelists, his pastors and teachers, and to every man his work, the work of the ministry, and commanded the porter to watch, to be vigilant. This is where the authority comes from. It's an appointment by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Second Timothy chapter 2, it's compared by metaphor to soldiers serving a captain. Second Timothy chapter 2. Thou therefore, my son, Paul to Timothy. This is a pastoral epistle. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus should be read as from one minister to another. And better than that, from the greatest apostle to a bishop, Timothy. They're called pastoral epistles for a reason. Because they're primarily for pastors. Anything you draw from them is only secondary and indirect. And if you get too pushy, then you're going to get yourself in trouble because this is ministerial. If you want epistles addressed to you, then read the epistles addressed to the churches, starting with Romans. This is from Paul to another minister. And it's telling him how to conduct himself in the church of God as a minister. Not as a member, as a minister. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Thou therefore, my son, my son in the ministry, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. There's four generations of preachers. Thou therefore endure at least three. I see four. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Timothy, you be tough. Verse 4, no man that warreth. Look at the military figures of speech here, the metaphors. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Pastors and teachers or bishops are soldiers, and they've been chosen by a captain to be tough soldiers and to endure hardness as soldiers and to fight a warfare. And that warfare is a spiritual warfare of using the preaching of the gospel to tear down strongholds and to bring into captivity every thought and the imagination of your heart and make it subordinate and obedient to the Word of God. That's in 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, through and I've shown you that before. But that's the warfare. It's to war against you. Because you need someone to war against you. When you sit down with your Bible and go to prayer, what you come up with is 
a solution that you want for the domestic peace that it will give you. When at the same time, you are receiving counsel from the pulpit and the pastor and the bishop of this church indirectly through the fingertips of some women that you should follow God and not follow man. But that's what you get. I'm supposed to bring those thoughts and those imaginations into captivity. She isn't capable without a miracle from heaven to discover truth. It's not the way God set it up. I don't intrude on any of your professions. I would never write a letter to this church and tell you that while Chris Carnell is a good guy, he's an idiot when it comes to chemistry. And that I can list 10 to 20 things and end that list with the word more of all that he does wrong down there mixing those batches. He knows that when I enter the parking lot, I'm trembling and in fear. What is the problem in understanding that? Because we have weekend warriors or Monday morning quarterbacks that because they spent 15 minutes devotionally reading the Bible, they think they've discovered something. They've never divided anything, let alone rightly divided it in their lives. For anyone, including themselves. The wharf, I want to turn you to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's going to get me a few minutes behind, but I want you to see it. You just saw that a minister is a soldier. And that in a pastoral epistle, Paul says to Timothy, his, his dearly beloved son, he loved Timothy very much, you're a soldier, and be a good soldier, and endure hardness as a soldier, and fight a good warfare, and don't get in, entangled in the affairs of this life. I want you fully dedicated to your war that you're fighting. Second Corinthians 10 Paul said in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Yes, we have a physical existence. We have to eat and drink and put on clothes and take care of ourselves physically, but we have a spiritual battle to fight. And it's, here we go, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't carry literal swords. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, we have a godly benefit and a divine blessing upon our efforts and their spiritual efforts, casting down imaginations. We throw down what you think. It is our job to take what you think and throw it to the ground and dash it in pieces on the ground. Casting down imaginations. This is pastoral right here. Paul is describing his ministry. He has been describing it. He's going to continue describing it because he's in the defense section of 2 Corinthians about his ministry. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Anytime anyone gets lifted up and comes up with an idea that's different than the knowledge that God has given us in His Word, we slash it down to the ground again. And bringing into captivity every thought. We want to capture your runaway thoughts. We don't want you being distracted by a bumblebee or wandering away from the herd where you're going to be devoured. When I say we, I'm referring to the bishops of the Lord Jesus Christ who are the pastors and teachers of His churches in the New Testament. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, when your obedience is fulfilled, when we get you committed to the truth, we will then be ready to revenge 
your disobedience if you turn away from what we've taught you and what we've got you committed to. We've got to keep moving. By a political metaphor, the ministry is compared to an ambassador. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. A minister is an ambassador from God for Christ. And so when an ambassador is pleading with you and beseeching you, it's as if God is pleading with you and beseeching you. When that bishop asks you to rub the belly of Buddha and drink a cup of goat's blood while facing the east and praying to the devil, you can say, I will not go there. But until you have a tsunami of Bible evidence, you're thankful for the gift that God gave. Just like every one of you fathers want your wife and children to be thankful for the gift and the authority and the office of Father over them. And it's no different. There's no difference between you directing your children and me directing you. And if you don't like the comparison, it's too bad. Just go read 1 Timothy, how a minister gets qualified. How he rules his family, because if he doesn't know how to rule his family, he will not be able to take care of the church of God. Because you're all a bunch of little children. Paul said, pray for me as an ambassador in bonds in Ephesians chapter 6. When you fight a bishop of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're fighting God. We have embassies in foreign cities, and we have ambassadors. If they blow up our embassy, I don't mean terrorists, I mean the government, and hang an ambassador, they have committed a crime against our nation, and we will have war. Because they have messed with our nation by messing with the representative of our nation, the ambassador. You know, Ananias and Sapphira both dropped dead right in the church of God. New Testament. Both dropped dead. And and Peter said, who's tempted you to lie to the Holy Ghost? You haven't lied to men. But they had lied to men. It was men they handed the gifts to, and it was men, they said, who asked them, how much did you get for your land? And they told them such and such, which matched the amount they had just given. You haven't lied to men. You've lied to God. Look at Hosea twelve thirteen. Daniel, Hosea. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea twelve thirteen. This is the blessing of the office. When God blesses the office, it can do powerful things. It can do wonderful things. The best thing you can ever know, ever do to find an answer to a dilemma that I've referred to a couple times this morning is to pray to God for your pastor to have wisdom and then ask him what you should do. He knows the word of God two or three times better or two or three hundred times better. We'll cover that in a moment. Blessings of the office. Look at what can happen even with a man who doesn't want to go. Even with Moses, who tried to get out of it, and God in anger had to force him to go and say, Fine, if you don't think you can speak, I'll send Aaron to be your mouthpiece for you. Then you can just go and stand there like a deaf mute, and Aaron can talk for you. And he was a mighty man, Moses, but he was pulling every excuse he could think of, and I know someone like that. But it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Look at this verse. 
Hosea 12, 13. And by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet was he preserved. Amen. You say, but the Lord did it. But the Lord did it by a prophet. And who was the prophet? Moses. And what a great prophet he was. Wasn't Moses great? Boy, he could raise his rod, and the Red Sea would divide. And he could lower his rod, and Pharaoh didn't like what the Red Sea did. He could throw his rod down, it would become a serpent. He could pick that serpent up by its tail, and it would become a rod again. Wonderful verse. Look at Proverbs 14.4. Proverbs 14.4. Where no oxen are, the crib is bare. That's not a crib in your nursery where you put your baby. That's a corn crib where you store corn for your animals. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, because when you are plowing by hand, you're only going to be able to plow and cultivate and plant and harvest enough for yourself and your family. You will not have the strength that can multiply produce. You need an ox. There's a whole lot about capitalism right here in this verse, but that's not why we're here. We're here because the New Testament tells us that when the Old Testament speaks of oxen, it may be speaking about the ministry. And so when we look at this, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. Churches don't grow in knowledge and understanding and grace and holiness and families and marriages and and truth and doctrine and defense of the faith without an ox, someone to labor for them. But much increase is by the strength of the ox. God's given an office where there's someone strong in a calling that you're not dedicated to. And so he's going to be strong in his calling. You're going to be strong in your calling because each of you have gifts as well. And together we share the results of those and we all prosper. It's a wonderful way. It's a, it's the division of labor and God didn't even ask Adam Smith about it. Right. He came so late. 1776. The English were, were really stupid, weren't they? And I am English for all of those of you in radio land. But they really were stupid, weren't they, to think that Adam Smith had stumbled on something? Anyway, that's off the subject too. When the Bible says that he needs to be apt to teach, that means he was born with it. Apt to teach. Generally, you cannot train someone to teach who doesn't have an aptitude to it. Because the aptitude to teach is the ability to to read, to comprehend, to study, to organize thoughts, to synthesize thoughts, to analyze arguments, to find the weakness of arguments, and to communicate all of that in a sensible, logical fashion so that others that are less competent are able to follow it and understand what's being said. He's ordained with that gift. Paul would lay hands on a man. He laid hands on Timothy. And he said, Neglect not the gift that is given thee with the laying on of my hands. There's a gift that comes in that. Sometime you can ask me. Anytime you can ask me. Sometime I'll tell you about a radical change that took place in me in July of 1984. I'll tell you about it. In a few minutes of time, I became more merciful than the sweetest woman in here, my wife. The change that took place was unbelievable. When I was being trained for the ministry, it was said by church members, if he was the past, this is what they said to the pastor of the church where I was being trained, 
If he was pastor, I wouldn't be a member, would I? And what they meant was, he'd have already thrown me out by now. And so, my training took a different tack from there on. And through ordination, a change took place, and the debates that have taken place in my home for the last 30 years have been me trying to calm my wife down rather than that sweet little thing calming me down. I guess I've just told you, you don't even have to ask me now. The change was drastic. If you went for a week's vacation when I was 20 years old, you should be thrown out of the church the next Sunday. You say, wow, you were hard. Yes, I was. You say, were you like that after you got ordained? No, the Lord gave me a measure of mercy and grace and peace and long-suffering that I don't have by nature. Neglect not the gift that is in thee with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Stir up the gift that is in thee with the laying on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, Timothy, go to work. Stir up that thing that's in you by the laying on of hands and get busy. Here's how he ought to apply himself. First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. I love a great work ethic. I've preached it to you for many years. A work ethic in your profession, and I hope that I illustrated in my profession. First Timothy chapter 4. This is, this is from Paul, who got it from Jesus Christ to give it to Timothy. Verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. This is uh, the job description of the minister. Meditate upon these things. Reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Give yourself wholly to them. Don't get distracted in sideline duties. And we'll have more to say about that in some days to come very soon. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. It will be visible when a man of God is applying himself this way, and he's freed from all other distractions to apply himself to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. And then it goes on to say, to take heed to two things, the doctrine and his personal life, in verse 16. He's not to be entangled in the affairs of this life. Scriptures are primarily, primarily for the man of God. Don't let your feelings be hurt when I say that. Simply submit to what the Bible actually says about it. Recognize that in the history of the world, the members of the church of God in the Old Testament and most of the members of the church of God in the New Testament didn't have the scriptures in their house. If they had the scriptures, they had part of them. But there weren't dollar stores in the days of Moses in which everybody could run down there and get the five books of Moses and take them home and read them beside the fireplace to their children. They learned from the priests who had the Bible. And all the people would gather and assemble in the gate that is before the water gate, and they would stand there from the morning until noonday to hear the word of God from ministers and ready scribes in the law of God like Ezra. That's how you heard the word of God. And you would celebrate 
because you heard the Word of God read distinctly to you so that your ears could pick up every word from the mouth of God and then the sense would be given and you could understand the reading and you would rejoice and you would celebrate. It doesn't say anything about celebrating at home because you read the Bible and prayed over something and you found an answer. Ezra and the whole list of names that go along with him, Sherebiah and the rest of them, gave understanding to the Word of God. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and remember that we are in a pastoral epistle. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This church... First of all, I'm asking you not to let your feelings get hurt. I'm asking you to submit to what the Bible actually says. Then I want you to remember something, lest you get all bent out of shape and twisted like others before you, and I get your email tonight. Remember this. This church exalts daily Bible reading, learning Bible hermeneutics, bought every one of you Men, an online Bible program, promotes and pays for Bible quizzing, puts you in the pulpit whenever you'll volunteer or submit to my request. And though it may be a mistake in emphasis, we're not going to change it until further notice. Just remember that about this church. I do emphasize the Bible to all of you and for all of you. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. This isn't men. This isn't women. This isn't children. This isn't a joy club, and this isn't Bible quizzers. It's the man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. This is a pastoral epistle. It is this epistle where Paul told Timothy back in chapter 2 and verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God. Nowhere do you find a verse like that in the epistles to churches. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman, because it's the work of the ministry. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible is the man of God's book first and foremost. And then he says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge thee, therefore... Because of these perilous times that are going to come, Timothy, and because God's given you His Scriptures that are able to make you perfect in doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, thoroughly furnishing you unto all good works, because of that I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. It's for preachers. Do you know how many illiterate Church members, preachers have preached to over the generations and centuries. Preach the word. And that's how we are saved from the perilous times. God gave ministers for the perfecting of the saints, not personal Bible study and devotions. Just submit yourself to the Bible. It's the way God set the Bible up. Look at Malachi chapter 2. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. I've already referred to Nehemiah chapter 8, where Ezra and the others read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. We have celebrated and we have rejoiced about that passage. I just want you to realize the nature of it, that the people did not gather in someone's backyard around the barbecue to read a chapter of the Bible. Malachi chapter 2, God, the God of heaven, is taking up 
his judgment against the priests. Look what he says about them. Oh, it's terrible. This, this is ferocious language and justifiably holy language because he is the holy God of heaven for neglecting the covenant of their priesthood and the call and charge of them to the ministry. He says in the middle of verse 2, I will even send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed. Remember that the priesthood descended from father to son to son. I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts. This is the ministry that God is speaking against. He says, My covenant was with him, that's with Levi, the father of the priests and of the Levites. Verse 6, the law of truth was in his mouth. Verse 7 is the verse I want. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Just submit yourself to the word of God. I have helped you. I have taught you more hermeneutics than you would hear in any other church. I have given you tools to do it. I put you in the pulpit. I encourage you in the word of God. I love hearing it come out of your mouth. But remember this. Right here. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah 3.15, God speaking in prophecy of what He's going to do for Israel when He brings them back, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The Apostle Paul said, How is truth going to be perpetuated in the earth? The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. I can't find reading in there or church members having devotions. Don't make me say what I've already said to defend myself. Submit and hear what the Word of God has to say. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, my public ministry, commit the same. Don't let anything fall to the ground and don't add anything to it. Convey that to the next generation of preachers. And that is how truth is conveyed. Do you know how much was conveyed to me by a minister who wasn't conveying his own thoughts all the time, but was conveying what had been conveyed to him which had been conveyed to the man before him, which had been conveyed from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. I was having the accumulated wisdom of Baptist ministers for 2,000 years about Matthew 24 and 25 conveyed to me before certain ones had even been born. And it wasn't being conveyed at a room temperature level by children to each other. It was being conveyed, tried, true, tested, proven with the blood of the men before me. First Corinthians chapter four. First Corinthians chapter four. This is what I'm asking you to do today. You men, I defend you with your children and your wives farther than any pastor you know about. I defend our government. I defend you that are masters in the workplace. 
But I want to ask you to make an accounting in another sphere of authority right here. First Corinthians 4.1 Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. We are the servants and representatives and ambassadors and soldiers of Jesus Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God are handed out to you from a treasury that God's given to His ministry. Yes, you can read the Word of God. You can search the Scriptures to see if the things are so. But you don't search the Scriptures to think that you're going to make some discovery. I'll take your little discovery and crush it like a Christmas ornament under a sledgehammer. Because God's called me to do that. He's called me to take your imaginations and your thoughts. But what if I come up with a bright idea? Bring it to me. We'll see how bright it is. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. When you get a man of God that is the minister of Christ, verse 1, who is a steward of the mysteries of God, verse 1, and he's also faithful like verse 2, what a blessing you have. What a blessing I have. I had that blessing. Praise God. I'm thankful for it. If you have heard me denigrate, come to me and I'll confess it today before the sun sets. I have tried to honor, though there are differences, and though there have been personal attacks by whom I was ordained against me, I defend, and I'm very thankful for him, and I'm very thankful for God's use of him, and I'm very thankful for another minister, my father, who trained me from my youth about Bible and made me read it and helped me understand it. And I got to hear controversies when I was single digits. And when I was single digits, I have stood behind corners and heard men pick up my father and clench my fists and want to run around that corner and bash their faces in. And then some twit who was born to a drunkard atheist wants to sit in judgment on the man of God. You say you're not being very kind. I have, just get me, just let me get, keep going. Amen. The scriptures. It's the beautiful feet of some that God has called to carry the gospel. I'm so thankful for those feet of Paul. I'm right. so thankful for the feet of Timothy all the way down to the men I've known in my life. Let me take a minute and talk about ministerial advantage. Did you see that a minister is supposed to give himself wholly to these things and not to be entangled in the affairs of this life? What's he supposed to give himself wholly to? Reading, exhortation, and doctrine. What are you giving yourself to? SAP? Tire rubber? Good things. I want the perfect tire to come out of Greenville, South Carolina, and I want it on my car early. I want it to last forever. I want it to have perfect cornering characteristics. The next batch you produce, Chris Carnell, it should be perfect. Don't even tell me about it. Just say, it was good. Because I wouldn't understand anything beyond that. I honor your professions. You have creative gifts, and you exercise them for your masters, and I love to see it happen. Would you do a little bit of accounting for the office that God set up? I want to talk about ministerial advantage. I'm sorry that I'm going to go mathematical right now. I was asked by some to put this on a piece of paper, but I didn't do it. If you're comparing two things, it doesn't matter if it's a business and it's last year's revenue versus this year's revenue, or it's company A against company B. 
let's say there's two factors. There's two factors that make the revenue of company A, and there's two fa- the same two factors make the revenue of company B. Let's say it, it is the quantity of goods they sell, and it is the price per item they sell. Can you follow that with me? Here's how it goes. Let's say that the quantity they sold was two. It's very low math. And the price was two. So two times two, what is their revenue? Four. Now, if company B says, I can sell three, which is a 50% improvement in in one of the factors, and I'm going to raise prices 50% more. Okay, so it's three times three. What's the revenue of company B? Nine. That's called a geometric progression. I want you to think about it for a moment. Now, we only increased the price 50%. We only increased the quantity 50%. How did we get a 125% increase in revenue? Because there's 50% plus 50% plus 50% of 50%. Do you like it? Do you follow it? Okay. If there's an athlete and you're in, you're in the long jump and there's two factors, speed and strength, and he's 50% better than you in each of them, how much better of a long jumper is he going to be? 2.25 times better than you. 125% improvement. Okay, what if we do that with three factors? If we have three factors, then it's three times, no, it's two times two times two is eight, so it's revenue for company A of eight. But company B, it's three times three times three, which is 27, and so it's 27 compared to eight. That's three and three-eighths better. Okay, what if it's five factors? then it's eight times better because you've got two times two times two times two times two. We're up somewhere around 32. But when we take three and start doing that, it gets pretty big. I think it goes like this. Three times three is nine times three is 27 times three is 81 times three is 243 divided by 32 is eight. Eight times better. So if you're in an endeavor with another person and they're 50% better than you by eight factors that make up that particular job or calling or sport that you're involved in, they're going to end up being eight times better than you because they're 50% better by eight different factors. What if there's 10 factors? Well, then it's 58 times better. That's why it's called a geometric progression. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't... For the glory of God, I talk this way. You have forced me. I want to talk about Tom Brady for two minutes. Tom Brady is the best quarterback in the NFL. Tom Brady will be playing in the Super Bowl next Sunday. I want to compare Tom Brady to a Monday morning quarterback who's also called a couch potato. How much better is Tom Brady than a Monday morning quarterback who's a couch potato? who can scream on Monday when he watches SportsCenter, why did he do that? Thinking that he's better than Tom Brady. Tom Brady was born with an exceptional physical skills package of coordination, agility, and arm strength. You don't even know how to hold a football. I promise you, you don't know how to hold a football the way Tom Brady can hold a football and throw a tight spiral 60 yards. He was born with exceptional eyesight, peripheral vision, and thinking speed. 
He's played organized. Each one of these is a different factor, brethren. It, it hurts, I know. Next time when you see a quarterback like Tom Brady do something you don't think he should have done, just say, I'd have fumbled it and kicked it into the wrong end zone. Just be honest. Listen to this. He's played organized football devotedly since about the third grade. He passed grueling competition in California high school football at the University of Michigan and the NFL Combine. He has brilliant coaches that designed an offensive scheme just for him. He practices his plays more intensely than most any other football player in the NFL. He studies football films of his upcoming opponents many hours a week. He has a director of personnel that secures the receivers he needs to throw to. He has changed the face of the NFL in the last two seasons by exalting tight ends over wide receivers and turning defenses on their heads. I'm not going to get into any more of that. Some of you should know better, know that already. He has a lucrative contract hanging in the balance based very much on performance. He has the will to win, competitive courage and eagerness that is very unusual. Ray Lewis, one of the most competitive football players in the NFL, says Tom Brady has a will to win greater than anyone in the NFL. The Bible acknowledges this kind of incredible drive and temperance about athletes in 1 Corinthians 9.25 that they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. God admits that athletes go about this better than most Christians because they're tempered in all things. He doesn't sit around and eat one pound of Lay's potato chips with an eight-ounce carton of French onion dip every time he sits down in the living room. Do you know how much better he is than you? If we give him a 50% advantage in each of those factors, 60 times better than you. So next time, just say, good job, Tom. Do you, under, do you know that I can take each of you in your professions and do this? I didn't pick on any of you because I didn't want anyone to feel bad. I can do this with each one of you. It is wonderful to do it. Because you know where the advantages came from? God. And then some diligence. God's gift plus diligence makes the difference among men. I want to use professional bodybuilders for a second. And I want to do this for a reason. Little skinny, little skinny ectomorphs. An ectomorph, there's three body types. Mesomorph, ectomorph, and endomorph. If you're a mesomorph, you tend to muscularity eating Coke and chips. It's the way God made your body. If you're an ectomorph, you're stringy and lean, and you'll always be thin, and you can't gain a pound, even if you ate like some of the others in the church. Then there's endomorphs. An endomorph is one that tends toward being a, fat, a fatty body. You tend toward fattiness. Just go look these up. I, I had to explain that because I want to talk about the little ectomorph, the little skinny guy who can't put weight on. He goes and spends two ninety five to get himself a magazine, and he gets very discontent with the way God made him, because he sees this hulking guy on the cover that has 25-inch biceps, and he has a 24-inch stomach. That's what they've accomplished nowadays. And he looks at those bulging muscles and the little tiny waist and the great big neck and the veins and the muscularity and the vascularity and the low body fat. He just says, oh, every girl would love me if I look like that. And you know what? He's never asked a girl because they would say, I wouldn't want to be near a crazy, deformed freak like that. And if they read anything about the effect of anabolic steroids on certain parts of his anatomy, they really wouldn't. 
That is really getting off track. What about professional bodybuilder? Listen to this. They're all born mesomorphs. That's a gift from God. They have a great metabolism that converts food to muscular growth and energy more than most. They started young. They've been lifting on an increasing basis since about the sixth grade on average. They work out three to four hours every day. It's his full-time profession, so nothing hinders him. Has research assistants and personal trainers to enhance every aspect of his training. He eats a very expensive diet of carefully selected foods and nutritional supplements. The ones that work, he won't tell you about. The ones he's telling you about are the ones that aren't going to raise any competition. Has a very strong competitive drive and is seeking to win Mr. Olympia for sponsors. His living, his, his, his livelihood depends on it. He can sleep 10 to 15 hours a day for maximum protein uptake and recovery for his next workout. He has a secretary and public relations manager to guarantee absolutely no distractions to his life. And on top of these advantages, he uses anabolic steroids and human growth hormone. Now, if we assume a 50% advantage, he's got a 60 times advantage over you when the young boy looks at that magazine. You cannot and never will be like him. Right. And it's wisdom to learn that, and that's why I'm, say, I'm going through these illustrations. And you young girls, don't you dare look at those glossy pictures of those silicone-stuffed, hard photoshopped girls raise your hand that know what photoshop is photoshopped girls don't you dare worry about them if you will learn to be gracious and have the meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price and put a smile on your face and love and serve people and be humble and modest and take care and just take care of what God gave you don't try to make it what God didn't give you just take care and be be moderate about what God gave you, you are more attractive than they are. Because every real man and every prince does not want to get near those girls. And I would use words that I don't want going out on this tape. You just be what the Lord made you to be and don't let that bother you at all. A good Christian girl that loves and serves and is humble and is meek and is quiet and smiles and is gracious and cooperative and gets along and agreeable and benevolent, kind and courteous, wins hands down. Because it's what God made you. And do you know what He made you? He made you a stone of marble to be polished, to reflect His glory, and they can never touch it. And they would never sit in a church like this with a prince and they would never bear the children of a prince because it would mess up their bodies. And they're going to divorce you after three years, young men, and they're going to take you for every cent they can get out of you. They're whores. So I want you to get that. That's not what I'm preaching on, though. But I just had to chase that down while we were there. I'm trying to show you the geometric progression of advantages and factors. What if, what if there was a pastor... What if there was a pastor that was born with a little bit of intellectual ability to read, to comprehend, to analyze, synthesize, and quite fast. They got to grow up in a pastor's home. He learned the Bible very young and heard controversies when he was single digits. He was educated to read, write, speak, history, logic, the tools which are necessary for research and study in the Bible as well as any other book. He was highly motivated by a vow that he made to God in his youth. He's very thankful to God for his grace and his salvation and for a debt for sins. 
more than most. He has a full-time job to study the Bible 30 to 100 hours a week. He's not a weekend warrior for a few minutes. He has a collection of Bible study tools and their constant use leverage his ability many times. He was trained and proved by another who had been trained and proved by another all the way back to the Apostle Paul two two millennia of summarized wisdom in handling the Word of God. He's challenged by opponents in books and in person, forcing deep consideration of all kinds of arguments. He has a Bible familiarity with the whole Bible, and by constant use, it's constantly in his mind, so that he intuitively practices 2 Peter 1.20, that there is no private interpretation of Scriptures, and 1 Corinthians 2.13, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Two of our first three rules of Bible study, he, do, he does intuitively by the constant use of them. He has accumulated a body of knowledge of interpretations and arguments conveyed from ministers orally. If he's reached the 50s, he's accumulated quite a store of interpretational experience. The scriptures were designed and given by the author to him as bishop over other men. The spirit was given to him in a measure and with an end design different than he's given to other men in that respect. He's responsible to protect and he has an ambition to teach and nurture, drives great attention to detail. Church members and friends in the kingdom of God pray for him on a daily basis to bless his studies. He lives with a commitment to never change a point of doctrine due to the charge from the Apostle Paul without a tsunami of evidence for it. While the list could go on, I think 15 factors are pretty serious. If we assume 50% if we assume 50% improvement and ability in those factors, then he's 438 times more likely to arrive at truth in a passage of Scripture than you are. You say, wow, that's a big number, 400. Well, that's what a geometric progression is. It just keeps getting bigger, not in an arithmetic relationship, but in a geometric one. This will not offend, but please, wise men. This will not offend, but please, wise men. It will excite wise men the way God's arranged things. Because every wise person wants to go to a doctor that's five times smarter than you are, ten times smarter than you are, or 438 times smarter than you are. Why don't they want to go to church that way? Why do they want to go to a church where the pastor should sit down and let everyone share their opinions, even if they're not even 100, 1 438th, but more like 1 843rd of the pastor? Isn't that what we all want when we go to a mechanic? I don't want to find a mechanic that knows twice about cars that I do. He won't even be able to get mine started. (laughs) It's true. When you go to a financial planner, do you want them five times smarter or 438 times smarter? What's wrong with us when it comes to the house of God? What kind of a president do you want to vote for in a few months? One that's twice as smart as you? Or 438 times as smart as you. (laughs) You probably won't get one on the ballot. But we're going to pretend. And we're going to tell God that we're thankful for the man he puts in office. But do you understand me? Please understand me. Bishops gladly and easily submit to this measuring tool in other men's professions. And they acknowledge and praise the accomplishments of professionals they cannot and will not question. I don't pick on Eric about how he fills out his SBA paperwork for an SBA loan out of his office. I don't even want him to talk to me about it. 
I don't want to talk to Mark Crosby, even though I have a degree close to an accounting degree. I don't want to hear about the test that he took. I just want to hear that he passed. And I want to go out to eat with him and celebrate that he passed and that I didn't have to study for it or take that test. The foolish, the immature, the inexperienced, the rebellious, the proud will miss the understanding because they are too stupid to know what they don't know. The authority of the office comes from God. He told Paul told Titus, these things speak and teach and exhort and rebuke with all authority. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.11, these things command and teach. A good minister is known by how well he rules. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Church members are to remember them, obey them, and submit yourselves to them, and follow their faith knowing the end of their conversation because I'm going to be held accountable by the Lord Jesus Christ to a measure you won't be so it should be easy for you to follow someone who's going to get judged more severely than you and that if you must give an account to God with grief over the way you conduct yourself in the church it is to your disadvantage in life it is to your profit in life if he gets to tell the Lord I I thank God upon every remembrance of you. When you read that in the Bible, I want you to understand something about the prosperity of the recipients of that epistle. When Paul said, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, that's about as good as it gets on this earth to have the apostles saying that about a church. In controversies, the the Old Testament teaches us that the priest or the judge's decision from the law was final. God knew controversies would come between law and commandments, and He gave men to sort them out. God's ministers are the ones that are to distinguish between holy and profane. I'm now skimming what I have left from Ezekiel 44. Even when ministers disappoint personally, and I don't want to, but even when they do disappoint personally, yet their offices deserve respect. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Do whatever they bid you to do. Just do not after their personal works. They still had the authority of the office. And see, when you come to me and tell me about your boss, I'm going to say your boss is in an office and you're going to obey him. He may be unfair. He may be froward. Oh, we have the word that fits the Bible. He may be froward, but that means you're supposed to obey him. A wife comes to me and says, my husband's froward. I'll say, isn't that wonderful that God's given you an opportunity to shine as a woman? Respect of the office... Murmuring against God's minister is murmuring against God. When Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint David, do you know what it says about the elders of Bethlehem? They trembled. To have Samuel in their county, they trembled. Ministers are to be highly esteemed in love for their personality, for how regularly they write you. And we, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. That is their office. That is their gift. That is their labor. That is their work. And that's what I've been referring to today. And be at peace among yourselves. You have no idea how valuable that last sentence is to a minister being unfettered and not having anything distracting his mind to plow into the Word of God, and to come up with things new and old 
out of God's treasury. But when his mind is distracted, and trust me, my mind is distracted when the family, the flock, the church, the body that God gives has some of the idiotic problems in it that we've had recently. It's a, it is a horrible distraction, and my productivity just plummets. And you do not know what the kind of anger... I'm a man of productivity. You ask me, did you have a good day? How, ma- how many times do I say, I didn't get as much done as I wanted to get done? I didn't get as much done as I should have got done. And be at peace among yourselves. I just want to tell you why it's stuck in right there. Because it helps so much. Amen. If we'd have gone on reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, I consider it a very late thing to be judged of you. I don't really care what you Corinthians think about my ministry because I have one that judges me. It's the Lord that's right. going to judge me. That is one of the factors that make a minister, when a minister sits down and studies the Bible, it is entirely different from you. There's no sense of responsibility riding upon your shoulder. Right. I'm going to give an account for it, and I have 120 souls depending on it. Ministers are to be had in reputation and honor. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 29. Even if young, a bishop should be honored and respected. Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. And he told the Corinthians, when I send Timothy to you, don't you dare disrespect him because he's young. God defends his ministers. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, a king, presumed to tell Elijah what to do. It was come down off that hill. How many men lost their lives? Be very careful. I'm in, I'm in a math mode today. 102, a captain in their 50 and a captain in their 50. Fire came down from heaven just because he said, come down and come and see the king. 42 little children saw a newly ordained prophet in Israel. His name was Elisha. And they teased him that he had a bald head. And Elisha cursed them the name of the Lord. And the Lord did not say, Elisha, you sons of thunder, you're of a spirit that I know not of. You're of the spirit of the the devil. You ordained prophet of Elijah, you're too hard for me. Did God say any of those things? God sent two she-bears that he had prepared from the foundation of the world to tear 42 of them. Those little children didn't say, you're stupid when you preach. Those 42 little children didn't say, we know more about the Bible than you know. They just said he had a bald head. King Isaiah thought that he could once go into the temple and offer incense, and he died with leprosy. As I mentioned earlier, Ananias and Sapphira died before Peter because Peter said, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. Right. Much more could be said much more should be said. I don't want to say any more. I never wanted the office. I'm thankful for the office in the, in the fact that it's in the kingdom of heaven and that it's in the churches of Jesus Christ that I happen to be in that office. I'm the least of all men for the office. I am nothing. And I thank God for taking a wretch and a sinner and a rebel and giving a gift, yea, to the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. And I will be as faithful as I possibly can be in the office that God's given me. And I will speak to you again shortly about my time, that if it can be freed up a little bit by making some changes, 
I can be more productive for the Lord and more productive for you. May God bless this church, whether me or anyone else is ever in this pulpit. You do Him honor. And you give Him double honor if He rules well and if He labors in the Word and doctrine. And you know Him and you you esteem Him very highly in love for His work's sake and submit yourselves to to Him as He watches for your soul and follow His faith knowing the end of His conversation. And I hope that I hope before God that you'll submit to His Word and not be offended by anything that has been said. I will honor all of your offices, and I already have, and I will be faithful at doing it in the future. All four of the other offices, Father, Husband, Master, and Ruler, and I'll honor you in your professions. I will never write emails to the whole church telling the church that you don't know what you're doing in your profession. Keep doing what you're doing. I love watching your successes. I love hearing about them. But don't tell me what you really did. Just tell me that you you got a promotion, you got an increase, that you accomplished something big. That's all I can understand. And I'll, I'll be happy with that. Please stand with me.